1: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a twenty year warranty, and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit Douglas.ca/CanadaLand to claim this offer. Donate at camh.ca slash Canadaland to help CamH treat addiction and build hope. Listen, this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Building a business can be a lot. Add to that all of the invoicing, the accounting, the paperwork. If you're doing all of that alone, there are not enough hours in the day. But there is a solution, and that is FreshBooks. It's the all-in-one accounting software that can save you up to eleven hours a week. And right now, there's a special offer just for Canadaland listeners. Head over to www.freshbooks.com slash Canadaland to get 90% off of your FreshBooks subscription for four months. That's www.freshbooks.com Canadaland. Sean Silkoff, business writer for The Globe and Mail. Hello. Hi, Jesse. Today on the show... Broke Bank Mountain. And dude, where's my judge? Sean, welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to everyone by Wade Stadden, Zach Fair, Jessica Cole, Michelle Campling, Trisha DuRoy, Alison Minty, Brad Wasink, and Lisa.
2: My name is Lisa. Pronouns are she, her. I'm an instructional designer in Toronto, Ontario. And I support Canada Land because of the integrity of the reporting. I love the diversity of the stories that represent parts of Canada that get missed by legacy media. And I really appreciate that they truly do speak truth to power.
1: The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is causing shockwaves across the entire business world.
2: Silicon Valley Bank's collapse set off a panic. Bank shares in Asia and Europe slumped overnight. It is a big failure. It's the second biggest in U.S. history.
1: Sean, here's the danger of getting all of your news through the lens of the culture war. If you follow a bunch of of people who are always angry about something from one end of that lens or the other, and you happen to be like business illiterate as I am, here is uh, the story of the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank as I've been able to parse it together. On the one hand, we have a lot of people saying, well, this is what you get when you go woke as the Silicon Valley Bank went, you go broke. And uh, a bunch of like, Links to news sites, I don't even, uh, thefederalist.com and and, uh, Silicon Valley Bank pledged nearly $74 million to Black Lives Matter causes. Or uh, of course, the Daily Mail in the UK, only one board member from the Silicon Valley Bank Actually had a career in investment banking. The rest were Obama and Clinton mega donors. Link after link of how they were prioritizing diversity hires over people with real risk management experience, and obviously that's why this this bank went bust. And then on the other side, because we do try to you know we're parsing the news, I want to hear the other side of the story. On the other side of the story, I've got like the Guardian and the New Statesman telling me that this is a story about the hypocrisy of libertarian tech bros. You know they don't want government intervention until their bank is under threat, until their companies are at risk. Uh, Billy Bragg, don't get your news from Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg retweeting The Guardian, everyone's a libertarian until the brown water floods their home. So those are the two sides of the story, but I don't think either of them actually tell me anything about the story. Sean, as somebody who is financially literate, what actually happened here?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to try and uh, walk you through that. Uh, First, I just want to say, you know, the mainstream media gets a lot of uh, criticism, for whatever reason. And it's times like this that I think I'm happy, that I'm particularly happy that I work for a mainstream media outlet like the Globe and Mail, because what you just read sounds like, for the most part, a lot of garbage and a lot of hype. There's some truths here and there. The whole woke thing, I, I don't know what to say. It's I was rolling my eyes uh, when you read that one in particular. I think the facts themselves are a pretty sensational story and something we all need to understand. So, okay, first of all, let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank. What is Silicon Valley Bank? A lot of Canadians might not know it outside of the tech sector. So it's one of the world's most prominent technology financiers, or was. It's been around for 40 years. So that means it's been through a number of ups and downs. This is a bank that existed during the internet boom. It survived economic downturns of 2001 after the dot-com bust and uh, 9-11. It survived the credit crisis that came after the subprime mortgage meltdown 14, 15 years ago. So, you know, it has this model and it existed to basically help uh, Silicon Valley and other technology entrepreneurs build their businesses by providing loans and deposit accounts And credit lines and lines that venture capitalists could use. It's been an essential partner of that whole ecosystem that has helped turn the U.S. economy into the the biggest and mightiest in the world. And contributed to technology companies accounting for something like one quarter of the value of the S&P 500, the main stock index in the States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it operated in Canada as well. So, you know, Scotia Capital, which is one of the big brokerage firms here in Canada, referred to it as a critical cog in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Uh, Mike Moritz, who's one of the leading venture capitalists in the States, uh, on Sunday uh, wrote uh, that its failure is like a death in the family. And it was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., as well. So that's just a scene setter for what Silicon Valley Bank was or is, I guess, until we figure out what happens with it.
1: Okay. Why does it matter? This isn't Canada where we've got like, I don't know, five banks uh, in a trench coat as the now hackneyed cliche goes. This is like the States, there are thousands of banks. I guess it's not good if any bank goes bust, but like the tenor of the news, the pitch is like, this is super, super, super important. Why is this important to me?
0: Well, it's important for a few reasons. First of all, uh, tech companies, you talk about tech bros, and certainly a lot of tech companies have brought innovations and changes that maybe we don't need or or maybe are contributing to the downfall of society or whatnot. But you know, from an economic standpoint, uh, tech companies uh, create wealth, they create jobs, uh, they create opportunity. And that comes from a lot of startups that start off with very little money and very little revenue. And so they need risk capital providers to let them go out and try their thing fail hard uh, break fast and then fix things and course correct and so on and so all the all the things you hear about tech companies so Technology has been a really important uh, driver of the economy in the U.S., also in Canada and around the world. So Silicon Valley Bank, you know, often would appear in a lot of these financings. Like, let's say you're as a startup and you're doing really well and you raised $40 million from venture capitalists. Well, you might have $10 million of that from Silicon Valley Bank as a venture loan. And so you'd see it appear in a lot of these financings. So if all that money and capital kind of suddenly goes away from the tech ecosystem, you know, the disappearance of a funder, it's sort of like taking a bit of oxygen or, or rocket fuel, I guess out of it. And so a lot of uh, people in the startup world are kind of worried that this could sort of slow the pace of growth and slow the ability of companies to to get bigger and, uh, and, and employ more people and so on. But beyond that, there's contagion risk. I'm sure you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, as have most people. And it's funny how those scenes about the bank run.
2: Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run.
0: George Bailey trying to explain how bank runs work to the, the poor people of Bedford Falls, how much that still resonates uh, and, and and how much you can actually learn from, <laughs> from a scene in a fictional Frank Capra movie from the 1940s and apply that to today. Banking seems like a very steady sector, and it is. I mean, these are the bedrock institutions of the capitalist system, but they don't just live on deposits and loans. They also require confidence and you know if everyone shows up at a bank all of a sudden to pull all their money out well that creates a bank run and that money just isn't there for them to take out because of course the banks have loaned it out it's tied up in mortgages and corporate loans and and so on and so forth so there are safeguards that uh, exist in in various systems to prevent that from happening so what we're in a state of right now in the U.S is a real concern that what happened to Silicon Valley Bank could spread to other banks. And in fact, we didn't just have Silicon Valley Bank fail last week. Signature Bank also failed in the US, and that was the third largest. So you had basically the second and the third largest bank failure in US history, you know, in the span of a couple of days. And then as an added bonus, another bank called Silvergate Bank, which was heavily exposed to cryptocurrency, also failed last week. And the immediate concern is that depositors in other banks, particularly regional U.S. banks, smaller ones, not the ones like J.P. Morgan Chase, but, you know, smaller ones in in, in the States will go, holy crap, I have to take my money out now and that'll create runs on the banks. So you've seen bank stocks fall quite sharply in particularly the regional banks in the United States. But, you know, with contagion risk, it's sort of It sort of spreads to other institutions all around the world. And sure enough, we've seen Canadian bank stocks fall. uh, We're talking Wednesday, and it's uh, I think three of the four past days or maybe four of the past five days, Canadian bank stocks have fallen in price as well. And then the news uh, today is that Credit Suisse, which is a giant European bank, might not be so healthy either. So that has created fresh worries out there. So, okay, so you're saying, well, okay, big deal, bank shareholders, some depositors in California or maybe Mississippi are in trouble. Well, here's the problem. If the contagion risk spreads, uh, that's not good for the financial system as a whole. And also, a lot of this has been created by the fact that central banks, particularly the US Federal Reserve, and of course, here in Canada, have been jacking up interest rates. Why have they been jacking up interest rates? Because inflation was out of control. Why was inflation out of control? There's a little thing you might have heard of called the pandemic. So that threw supply chains into chaos around the world, a lot of other stuff. But basically, you start to see, we all experience this, prices really starting to rise sharply. So the way to stop prices from rising sharply is for central banks to crank up interest rates. And the idea is by cranking up interest rates, you can slow down the economy and prices won't go up as much. So if there's a full-on crisis now, particularly created by conditions Uh, from rapidly rising interest rates, central banks are left with a big dilemma. Do you now reverse those rate hikes or stop or reverse the rate hikes to prevent further eruptions around the financial system? Or do you continue to try to fight inflation? So this is a real dilemma. And markets, traders, fund managers, et cetera, et cetera, Everyone in that bucket in the system hates uncertainty, and we are just swimming in uncertainty right now. I, I didn't lose you there, did I? I, I, didn't hear any, uh, I didn't hear any snoring, so I hope I'm doing okay here. I think I got it, and the way my brain
1: processes this, you'll tell me if I have missed anything, but uh, my understanding is, is that Silicon Valley Bank, uh, nobody knew that anything was wrong until they basically showed their hand accidentally with this disastrous decision. They, they needed money quick. And they sold off a bunch of billions of dollars of bonds that weren't supposed to mature for 30 years, taking a big loss, which basically said, oh, shit, they're panicking. So let's all panic. And then everybody shows up for their money back. And then, for your it's a wonderful life analogy. Somebody shows up and says, you want your money back? Your, your, your money is in Elon's uh, space venture, and, 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 <laughs> and, and it's in Jeff's crypto teledildonics startup. Uh, that's where your money is, and that doesn't wash. People still want their money back, and the bank doesn't have the money. So the bank goes bust.
0: Well, first thing I want to say is if your other impressions are as good as your Jimmy Stewart impression, I want to hire you for a kid's birthday party because that was great. Maybe not to do a Jimmy Stewart impression, but uh – well done. The, if kids only we, love,
1: if, the kids love a good Jimmy Story. <laughs>
0: if, if only we had George Bailey last week, everything would have been fine. And
1: then uh, the president uh,
0: comes in and says,
1: don't worry, I don't want every single other bank to have a similar run for people trying to take their money because then everything just collapses. So we're gonna cover you. Anybody who has money in Silicon Valley Bank is getting their money out.
0: All customers who had deposits in these
2: banks can rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of
1: today, no contagion, no contagion, no contagion, and trying to basically stop the domino effect. And we're in the uncertain period where we don't know if that's going to wash or not. And we're looking at markets and seeing the bank stocks fall, which shows a lack of confidence in the banks. And now the question is, I guess if I'm hearing you right, Sean, whereas like a couple of weeks ago, we were all running scared from the specter of inflation And all of our interest rates were getting jacked and jacked and jacked because we're so afraid of inflation. Maybe we've run too far and that inflation is imperiling the bank system. So now maybe we're running panicked in the opposite direction towards slamming the brakes on that so that the whole system
0: doesn't collapse. Maybe. Is that about it? You obviously know quite a bit and have drunk all this in. And yeah, you know, it's interesting because this, this will have massive knock-on effects. Like, you can draw a straight line, I think, between the subprime mortgage crisis, which led to a very deep recession and, you know, sort of a reordering of the financial system after 2008, 2009, to some of the mood that prevailed that probably led to the rise of, of Trump. I mean, some would make that argument. Big economic calamities, you know, lead to broader societal changes or, or changes in, in, in people's predicaments, which can shape moods heading into the voter booth. You know, raising interest rates, fighting inflation, protecting banks, these things do have political overtones to them. So, you know, although I didn't use the word woke once in my explanation, uh, and I wouldn't, <laughs> there are definitely political knock-on effects I'd like to go back, if you don't mind, on kind of unpacking a little bit how this failure happened, like just the Mm -hmm. mechanics of it, because I think it's important to understand. So Silicon Valley Bank is, you know, a very well-regarded bank. Forbes has a bad history of putting things on their cover that are about to fail, like Theranos and Enron CEOs. I think they put Silicon Valley Bank as one of the best managed banks, like weeks before this happened. But basically, here's what happened, okay? Silicon Valley Bank is the financier of the tech industry, all right? So in 2021, the pandemic has come and suddenly we're all online stocks of online companies or or valuations of online companies that are private start to skyrocket investors pile into the sector and suddenly tech is a wash in money. It's already been doing well for 10 years before. Okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of this money comes in to Silicon Valley bank. Now banks take deposits They pay a low interest rate and then they loan it out at a higher interest rate. That's how they make their money. Silicon Valley Bank basically was suddenly flooded with more money than it knew what to do with. So they committed a substantial amount into these long-term bonds you talked about. Uh, Mortgage-backed securities, really safe stuff, you know, 10-year duration, uh, long-term duration, 1.6% average yield, which sounds like, you know, a really conservative thing to do, right? But here's the thing. When interest rates rise, bond values fall. That's what you need to know. Because they had so much of this long-term debt on their books that they were holding, the valuation actually fell. And that's fine if you hold these things to maturity, but depositors were starting to pull money out to such an extent that they actually needed to raise money to cover it and make sure that they were on side with their regulatory requirements. So they went out and they sold a bunch of these bonds and actually crystallized a $1.8 billion loss. And they went out last week to sell stock to make up for that. That just freaked the market out. And why it was so cute with Silicon Valley Bank was, remember, this bank specializes in the technology sector. And what do you have in the tech sector? A lot of companies holding their commercial accounts a lot of venture capitalists who have big accounts as well and you know tech bros and other tech entrepreneurs and and founders and CEOs and they had on average very large accounts you know the average bank account holder might have i don't know a few hundred dollars a few thousand dollars in the US your deposits are insured up to $250,000 but silicon valley bank because of their clientele had the lowest amount of guaranteed deposits of just about any bank.
1: The guarantees only cover you up to 250,000. They got big ballers. The people who bank with them are, yeah, millions. And-
0: yeah, and this people are calling this the first bank run that was ever started over smartphones. So on Thursday, you know, after they've announced this share sale, uh, the loss on their bond portfolio you know, the, the ballers and the bros and the venture capitalists, you know, are basically getting in touch with each other. And the venture capitalists started telling all their portfolio companies, get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank We're you know, we're concerned, do it now. And something like a quarter of all deposits um, left the bank on Thursday. So that is a bank run. And so by Friday, trading on the stock halted, uh, the regulators stepped in and it was a failed bank. So that's how quickly it happened, and that's why that happened.
1: Here's my question. I can see why everybody would look at this and say, wow, the party's over. This is the canary in the coal mine. If tech is like a quarter of the economy and all these tech companies get their money from Silicon Valley Bank and then when they get rich, they park their money with Silicon Valley Bank and Silicon Valley Bank just went bust, then the party's over for everybody. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank. Is that true or is this just a bunch of circumstances because this one bank that should have known better fucked up?
0: Well, there are knock-on effects. I mean, certainly there's a lot of money in the system. The technology sector has drawn uh, money from around the world uh, in the U.S., and that money is still there. Uh, There's still a lot of support. I'll give you an example. In Canada, you've got the major banks here. Several of them are big financiers to the tech sector. You've got Royal Bank, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Scotiabank, National Bank, like BMO. They They all play here in this space. And they're already offering financing, not just fresh financing, but even replacement financing. Like, hey, if you had a credit line with Silicon Valley Bank and that's disappeared and you were relying on it, you know, we'll take a look at your books and maybe we'll give you one as well. I mean, banks will step in and provide it. I mean, there's going to be some dislocation for sure, but it's not like all the money has vanished uh, and all the support for tech. The problem is if the entire financial sector, if this contagion does get bad, and it spreads, you know, that could put a big freeze on. And, you know, you might realistically see a period where there is a lot less capital that's available to go into into startups and scale-ups. We've seen booms and busts like that. I mean, after the dot-com crash, The tech sector kind of went into what seemed like a big deep freeze for a few years. But, you know, by 2004, 2005, BlackBerry at the time, a hot company was on the rise. Google was on the rise. You know, companies like Facebook uh, were popping up. Amazon started its long rebound from bottoming out. But we just don't know. I mean, this is still very young. This is why everyone is so unsettled right now. We just don't know. This is very new. It's very fresh. It's unfolding. One thing that seems certain in the United States... I think you're going to see regulatory changes, which just means rolling back the rollbacks that happened a few years ago that helped contribute to the problems.
1: They got uh, concessions from Trump that allowed them to get into the situation in the first place. Sean, that does help. Ninety nine percent of the time. Financial reporting is for people in the financial world, and it's just like I don't even bother with it. Like I, I can't make heads or tails of it, and it doesn't seem like it's for me. And then a day like this uh, comes, and then I suddenly need, need to understand. And if the culture wars on Twitter don't tell me anything – I turned to the opinion pages, like, here's what your colleagues in the opinion pages of the Globe and Mail told me, like, you've got Rob Carrick with the kind of retail finance, like news you can use about finance, like, ah, oh, there's a silver lining here. Uh, if you're renewing a mortgage or buying a house, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is the best news <laughs> in ages, which may very well be true, but I'm like, okay, good news then. And then, like, there's just these different formats for op-eds. Another Globe and Mail op-ed, it's like a think piece, Silicon Valley bank collapse shows our financial system is just a collective delusion. That doesn't help me very much, John Rapley. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's like the other category of Canadian op-ed, which is like, this is why our very boring system is great. Silicon Valley bank collapse shows that Canada's concentrated banking sector is a good thing. Oh, I thought it was a bad thing that we pay the worst bank fees and have this monopoly. But actually, this is where good old safe, boring Canada has benefited us all.
0: It's all true. You know, all of these points of view are, are legitimate. This is not a black and white issue. For sure, if interest rates go down as a result of this uh, and you have a mortgage with a flexible or variable rate, that's wonderful news, you know, for that. It's not great, though, if you lose your job. You know, the Canadian banks are very frustrating for a lot of people, as are the Canadian telecom system and Canadian airlines. And there's the consistent theme that runs through all of those is that we have ownership limits and lack of competition here. You know, we we like to complain a lot, but we don't like to change things a lot. We like to complain about our health care. But, you know, somebody th- thinks about uh, privatizing part of the system and we all throw our arms up in despair. So, you know, we, are, we as Canadians are a mass of contradictions as well. The fact that we have very stable Canadian banks that are well regulated is in a time like this, a really, really good thing. And the question we all probably should ask ourselves, well, does that make up for all the other times? You know, I don't think we like having banks fail in Canada. We haven't had that happen in 100 years. And Canadian banks only really get their due on the world stage during crises. But during the rest of the time, you know, they they also generate big dividends for shareholders. They employ a lot of people. They are mainstays of the, of the Canadian economy. So it's like, it's like love them or hate them. Uh, this is a love them moment for the Canadian banks. In terms of being a collective delusion, well, I, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Sapiens, but, you know, a lot of things are collective delusions. You know, the Hariri points out in his book that, you know, nation states – Religions, corporations, rights. <laughs> just yeah, you know, everything. It, 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 these are all just the stories we tell. These are all just abstract notions that we've okay. codified onto a piece of paper. I mean, a corporation has hard assets like buildings and, and tractors and whatnot, but it exists in the collective imagination.
1: I mean, how do I know that the color blue to me is the same as the color blue to you, Sean? I really appreciate the elegance with which you summarized everything. I wonder if we can't dumb it down just a shade further. Like if, if my kid asked me what the heck happened here, could I just say crypto? It was crypto.
0: <laughs> no? One word, plastics. And <laughs> yeah, that's like a 90-year-old reference for most of your listeners. That's from a movie called The Graduate Kids. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics.
1: My kid loves graduate references. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity. And they are doing cutting-edge Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Sean, it is your first time on Shortcuts, and you may not know that we cannot stand it. We can't abide for an important news story or tidbit of information to whiz past people. We won't stand for that. Instead, we duly note
0: it. Sean, do you have something to duly note? I do. It's a little self-serving. I encourage it. Well, yesterday, the trailer for the new film BlackBerry dropped online, and it's based on a book that I co-wrote with Jackie McNish called Losing the Signal about the rise and fall of BlackBerry. The movie's coming out across North America. See the movie, read the book.
1: Check it out. I'm excited for this movie. Will you come on the show and talk to me about your reporting on BlackBerry? I will. Duly noted. I've got a quick tidbit to duly note here. A group called Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East has announced that they have a project called the Media Accountability Project created to encourage Canadian media to provide professional and fair-minded coverage of the Middle East, especially Palestine Israel. I think this is essentially a group that uh, advocates for, for Palestine, and they are launching this media monitoring effort. And I want to duly note this. I like this. Because it's better than what we have right now. Right now, we just have one media watchdog group that I'm aware of anyhow that is uh, specifically focused on Middle East coverage. And that is the pro-Israel group Honest Reporting. Uh, Nothing per se against Honest Reporting except for like the effect of what happens because they're there. And there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Anybody can do what they're doing. It's just that like they will read or watch or listen to everything that the Canadian media puts out on Israel. They read it very closely, and then their job is to complain if they, in their estimation, think that it's anti-Israel or biased or anti-Semitic in any way. But they define anti-Semitism in a very Israel-focused kind of way. And again, I think that's fine. You can do that, and then you can complain, and those complaints do make an impact. They make an impact for very like basic and straightforward reasons like reporters don't like when groups complain about their work or go to your boss and complain about your coverage. And you think about that when you're covering Israel, that that there is this group watching very closely. And from that, they get, I guess, a, a lot more consideration from their point of view in coverage. But the knock on effect of that is that I think it perpetuates this rather racist myth that Jews control the media. And I always think, like, man, if people only knew Jews don't control the media, a few Jewish people at this one special interest group that do not represent a lot of Jewish people, this group is paid to read the media every day and then complain. It's very simple. So now, with this new group doing that from the other point of view, any reporter on the Middle East beat, and man, I do not want that beat— they will now have to worry about getting complaints from either of these two groups, which is stressful. But I would suggest it is a better framework for coverage than how it has been thus far.
0: Duly noted. Tonight, what the police report reveals about a confrontation involving a Canadian Supreme Court judge. The incident, the interviews, and the call to 911.
1: Sean, how about those Supreme Court judges of Canada? What do you think?
0: I think there's nine of them, but one of them isn't working right now.
1: You got it. We got nine of them. And all nine wear fluffy red Santa robes. If you line them up in a row, it's adorable. It's a snuggly little collection. But what happens if one Supreme Court justice goes missing? If a Supreme Court justice goes missing in Canada, does it make a sound? Do we notice? Let me tell you a story. It begins in February... When Justice Russell Brown, who was appointed by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, he disappeared. He stopped showing up for work. Turns out he took a leave of absence, but at the time, nobody knew that. It was like, I guess, a secret leave of absence at the time. Nothing was said publicly. The court did not provide any reason for this. Could have been anything. Chief Justice Richard Wagner informed Federal Justice Minister David Lametti that Justice Brown was on a leave of absence and the justice minister didn't say anything either. The first clue came in a court ruling a few weeks later when an asterisk was placed next to Justice Brown's name explaining that he had not participated in this ruling. He had participated in the hearing that led to the ruling, but not to the ruling. That's all the public saw. But a keen-eyed reporter, your colleague at the Globe and Mail, Justice reporter Sean Fine, noticed that asterisk and sent some questions to the court essentially asking, dude, where's my judge? And it was relevant because there was a big environmental law case coming up which was going to pit like federal jurisdiction against provincial and Justice Brown tends to have dissenting opinions in favor of provincial jurisdiction. This was going to be a consequential absence if he wasn't around for it. So, you know, was he going to be there? Where is he? What's the deal? And only because Sean Fine asked that question did we get some partial information. The court released the statement, Stephanie Bachand, executive legal officer to the chief justice sent an email. Unfortunately, we cannot disclose why Justice Brown is currently on leave to respect confidentiality. There has been no statement by the court for the same reason, very mysterious. So now at least the question is out there and the press is buzzing around, trying to figure out like what's going on here. And ultimately we're told he's on a leave of absence. Okay, this is when we find out he's on a leave of absence, but we don't know why. On February 27th, the CBC gets a quote from Amir Adoran, law professor at University of Ottawa, who's been on the show before, and this is what you do when you can't actually report facts of the news. You get experts' opinion. You kind of put pressure on it. Adoran says, like, this is, this is strange. He says, listen, if Justice Brown is absent for personal reasons because he's ill or caring for a family member, then okay, then, then there's a right to confidence, but... If it's for workplace reasons, if he's been throwing furniture in the office or harassing coworkers, then then that's, that's not rightly confidential. He's a public official, and we should at least be told whether it's due to personal or workplace reasons. That is when we got the statement from the Canadian Judicial Council on March 7th.
2: We have a developing story today. A Supreme Court of Canada justice is under investigation. The Canadian Judicial Council says it is reviewing a complaint
1: into the alleged conduct of Russell Brown. His conduct is being reviewed. Because of a complaint. Okay, now, now you've got reporters really interested. And it was the Vancouver Suns, Ian Mulgrew, who got the story first. And it ran on March 9th. Here's what we learned through that report and through some reporting from the Globe and Mail. Uh, the headline read, High Court Justice Russell Brown under investigation after altercation at Arizona Resort. What? The country's judicial watchdog is investigating accusations that Supreme Court of Canada Justice Russell Brown engaged in obnoxious drunken conduct in Arizona that ended in an altercation post-media has learned. Here's the story, as I've been able to piece together from a bunch of different reports. Pretty detailed, actually. So, Justice Russell Brown was in Arizona. He was at the Omni Scottsdale Resort and Spa on January 28th. He was there for an awards ceremony and banquet honoring Louise Arbour, former justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. And according to one of the women involved in this incident, she was at the resort too with her friends. There was this group of people who were there for a different thing, for a baby shower, and they were at the lounge at like 11 p.m. And it was this uh, woman and her mom, and one of them uh, had a boyfriend there too. And the boyfriend goes to the bathroom or something, and it's just the three women at the lounge, and one of them sees Judge Brown. She'd noticed him earlier in the bar wearing a tuxedo. I thought he was part of a wedding, she said. So I invited him over because I thought he was just like, yeah, you know, we're all hanging out, come hang out with us. So he joins them while the boyfriend is in the bathroom. The boyfriend comes back and finds this judge in a tuxedo with his girlfriend and the other ladies. And this boyfriend, who happens to be a Marine Corps veteran named John Crump, he says that Brown boasted of his importance and began to read from his speech. One of the ladies present told police later that the judge kissed her on the cheek once or twice, placed his hand on the small of her back, touched her leg. She says to the police that, you know, she wasn't touched in a sexual way, but it was unwanted touching. So the Marine says that later on, they're getting away from this guy. One of the ladies said that, you know, he was coming on to me while he was touching my daughter. It was super creepy. And this is a a sordid little story, Sean, and I'm going to tell you every little detail of it. So according to these witnesses, the judge follows them as they go back to their room. And this Marine veteran blocks the guy and tells police that he says to the judge, look, you are clearly intoxicated. The girls are creeped out by you. And the judge shoved him. I pushed him back, says Crump. And then I punched him in the face twice. And he fell to the ground. An official with the resort later told the cops that he found Justice Brown by the hotel pool and went back to his room without any fuss. And all three of these people involved gave these lengthy statements. Video from the body cam on the cop went public and uh, the police report is in the hands of the Canadian press right now. And as the story trickles out, Justice Brown breaks his silence and denies it all. He says, we all left the lounge at roughly the same time. Outside of the lounge, Mr. Crump objected to me rejoining the group and suddenly, without warning or provocation, punched me several times in the head. Taken by surprise, I was unable to defend myself. And he said that he'd hoped to keep his silence on this, but because the Marine went public, it forced him to make a statement. Sean, what do you make of this story from Arizona?
0: Well... The facts are still coming out. I'm just an armchair observer like, like anyone. I, I, a couple of things jump out. Humanity is messy. Things happen that are <laughs> complex, and sometimes people should take a hint. If it's true that he was reading from his speech to a bunch of people in a bar, <laughs> that's not someone I want to hang out with at a bar. But, you know, that's his right, uh, I would suppose. You said this was a sordid little story. You know, the most sordid thing about this is kind of the way that the keepers of information in Canada, official information, the Judicial Council and so on and so forth, didn't share any of this with the public. I find that kind of disturbing. Uh, If he's under investigation, if he's uh, suspended or not at his job, in a very, very important job in Canadian civil society, we need to know that and we need to know why. And I think this is kind of a pattern in Canada where a lot of stuff that should be shared with the public, with the press, isn't. And we have to go to exceptional lengths in the press to get it out there. You know, if you've ever used the access to information system, as I know you probably have, you know how deeply frustrating it can be, how you can wait months or years for even basic information, which is often heavily redacted. There's very little data where there should be lots of data. And this isn't a good thing. It's not a. It's not a good thing for anyone in Canada. So that that's one of the things that jumps out at me. I think as Canadians, the thing that disturbs me the most is how it took uh, a lot of pressing to get these details out when they should have just been readily and freely offered to the public.
1: I think you got it. I mean, as for the story itself, who the hell knows? It's a moderate, mild, prurient interest. The thing that's really alarming here is exactly what you're talking about, that like if a Supreme Court judge from the states, just like what – missing, like was not at work for week after week, there would be like a hue and cry. And I'm only going to put this on our press because without Sean Fine asking that question, without Ian Mulgrew getting the information, like it's the press that actually brought this to our attention. But it was like five weeks went by. And it wasn't even, like, that scandalous a story. Like, obviously, calculations had been made that, like, this is such a stain and a smear on the prestige of the court that we can't even let the public know that, that these allegations have been made or, or even that there's an investigation or, or a complaint has been filed. Like, it was all just kept under lock and key. When Glenn McGregor posted the body cam video...
2: Are you going to uh, call this? Yeah, yeah. That's what i How can I help you? Uh, so some guy was trying to roll up on the girls that I was with... Uh, Followed us back from the bar, back to the room. I told him, you're not following us. Basically, he tried to get around me. I said, you're not following the girls to the room at all. I shoved him. He came back at me, kind of fought him a little bit. He ripped my shirt, and then hotel staff helped him
1: back to his room. He remarked on Twitter, Amazing how much more transparent the U.S. justice system is compared to Canada's. The police sent us this video within hours of our request. Sean, don't you like breathe a sigh of relief when you're trying to report a story that starts in Canada, but then the story somehow moves to the States because you just know you're going to get so much more information. Like any institution, like police, official bodies, governments, or even just eyewitnesses. Like you get the story from three different perspectives. You get video footage. You get a police report. Like it is like
0: pulling teeth to get anything in Canada. Well, certainly when you're dealing with U.S. institutions, uh, it, it is like breathing different air and the information tends to flow a little more freely. Sometimes it's kind of funny. I think it makes for better reporters in Canada because we're just used to and assume that it'll be harder to get the information out here. So we go to other lengths. I mean, we we call our sources, we do our homework, et cetera. One thinks it really shouldn't be that hard to get some of this basic information out you can agree. Well, okay, maybe maybe the court didn't have to spill everything or the judge's counsel, but it shouldn't have been so hard to pry some basic details out of them as as it was. You were kind of used to it here. It's unfortunate. Occasionally, we publish big stories. Uh, the Globe has done this about how hard it is to get data out of official institutions in Canada. How people don't talk. I mean, just look at the reporting out of Ottawa from from our bureau and uh, in particular and others about how difficult it is to pry information and so on out of the government. I mean, even this government uh, promised to improve the access to information system, but, uh I don't know if you've used it recently. Yeah, I guess that priority kind of fell into the back of the couch along with proportional representation and spare quarters out of people's pockets.
1: It's just a daily thing here. I mean, David Puglase reporting for the Ottawa Citizen on this very important story, much more important story, I would say, about sexual misconduct allegations against uh, Canada's top soldier. Department of Defense, he reports, claimed that a document about this couldn't be found then we told them we had it. Essentially, there's a suggestion here that they were misrepresenting the fact. Like it's one thing if they don't don't give you documents in a timely manner or they withhold things, they'll actually claim they don't have it. And there's a long history of uh, documents being destroyed or, you know, I don't want to say lie without, you know, but like where we later find out that things that they say they don't have, they had all the time. You know, this is a problem for reporting at like a fundamental level. It is a big I guess, cultural, like, like institutional culture difference. Like it's almost like withhold by default is how it works here in Canada. You know, Stephen Harper's government's got like a lot of, of attention for how withholding they were and how broken the system was for ATIP. I don't think that the, that the current government is any better. And with all of the rhetoric that we get about like the importance of the press, they're gonna support the press, they're gonna bail out the press, the press is so important. I'm like you wanna help us, Answer our fucking questions. Like hand over the documents which you're legally required to give us when we ask for them. That would be a good start. Sean, that is
0: shortcuts. Thank you for joining me for it. Hey Jesse, thanks. That was fun.
1: Listen, we're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at Jesse at and I read everything that you send.
0: Sean Silkoff, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm everywhere you'd, uh, you'd expect to find me.
1: And a movie based on your book and reporting, BlackBerry, is out soon. This episode is produced by Aviva Lessard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Do it now. Just click on the link in your show notes or go to CanadaLand.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint
0: pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or
1: anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust
2: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open-and-shut case but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.